Good morning. It's a pleasure to have this opportunity to open up God's Word together with you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us again briefly, and then we will dive into God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we think of Peter's words about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to you who judges justly. And so help us, Lord, by your power, your spirit, your work, to follow in his footsteps today. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In March of 2017, a man named Barrett Crake uh, was uh, boarded a flight from Turin, Italy to return to his hometown of Los Angeles, California. Uh, Crake was a musician and had traveled to Turin to collaborate with some other musicians there and to play some shows. His trip apparently went well. The collaborations were smooth and the shows that he played were a success. All was well until Crake's flight home. At some point during the flight, Crake removed his passport from his coat pocket and placed it in the seatback pocket in front of him. He then relaxed on his way back to the States. He enjoyed snacking and beverages, watching movies and listening to music. The plane arrived home back in LA on time. Great Crake grabbed his carry-on and deplaned, excited to make it home. But somewhere between deplaning and arriving at customs, panic struck him like a bolt of lightning. Crake realized, I don't have my passport. He frantically patted himself down, searched every pocket on him. He looked in his carry-on, dumping everything out until he remembered, oh, the passport is in the seat pocket of the plane. And I'm not allowed to get back on the plane. He, he pleaded with the, the gate agents to be able to board the plane again to retrieve his passport, but to no avail. So it was no surprise that when Crake arrived at customs, he wasn't allowed through. He told them he was an American. Look, I, I'm from here. This is my hometown. He described living in America for years. He, he talked about his hometown, where he went to undergrad, and about all of his experiences growing up in the States, but the customs agents were unmoved. Craig didn't have the necessary item that gave him access to his homeland. Luckily, Craig was able to get a, repla a replacement, but not before spending the night in a custom cell with drug smugglers. That must have been fun, waiting for his paperwork to be approved. Uh, I tell that story because it's somewhat of an illustration of what we're going to be taught in our passage today. That our entrance into the promised land, into the kingdom of God, into the heavenly city requires a passport of sorts. Right? We, we may say that we belong in the heavenly city. We may claim that we have believed in Jesus and so should, so should be enter into the promised land. But according to our passage today, if we don't have the right passport, we won't be able to enter into and receive the inheritance that God has promised for his people. Now, what is that passport, you ask? Well, I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 12 this morning as we continue our study in 1 Peter. I want to encourage you to turn to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it. I also want to encourage you to keep it open in front of you because we're going to be looking at it often in our time together. 
Uh, over the last few sermons in 1 Peter, we've been considering Peter's instructions to specific groups in the church, right? After telling everyone to submit to the government, he spoke directly to slaves, servants, telling them how they were to live. Then he spoke to wives and told them what it looked like for them to live as Christians. Then he spoke to husbands and told them what it looked like for them to live as Christians in their marriages. Now in our passage today, Peter zooms back out, addressing everyone, and as he does so, he tells them that if they're going to enter into the heavenly city and receive the imperishable inheritance that God has promised to his children, they must have their passport. I want you to listen now as I read verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you're taking notes, the main point of my message today is that believers must live godly lives if they want to enter into eternal life. Believers must live godly lives if they want to enter into eternal life. That is, a godly life will be your passport to accompany your claim to faith in Jesus Christ. It will will be your passport to your claim to be a citizen of heaven. Now, I know some of you may be more sensitive to to something that sounds like works-based righteousness. We're gonna get to this later on in the sermon. That is not what I am preaching at all. But I also want us to sit with The reality that the authors of the New Testament see no tension whatsoever between repent of your sins and be forgiven of your sins. You are made righteous in Jesus Christ and you need to live a godly life. No tension whatsoever. And so we want to rejoice in the fact that there's no tension there for us. I want to relieve that tension for you now. We'll talk about that in the third point. But the call is clear, right? Believers must live godly lives if they want to enter into eternal life. So we're going to consider this passage in three points. Point one. Godliness inside of the church. Point two, godliness outside of the church. And point three, results in receiving eternal life. All right, so first, let's consider godliness inside of the church. Believers must live a godly life with those in the church. Look again with me at verse eight. Peter begins, finally, all of you. So after zooming in on specific groups within the church in the previous passages with specific instructions on how they're to live based on their station in life, he's zooming back out, giving instructions to the whole church, right? Whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're a child or a senior citizen, whether you're employed or unemployed, rich or poor, Caucasian, African, African African-American, Asian or Indian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and been born again by God's spirit, then Peter wants you to know the godly attitudes and virtues that you should be cultivating in your own life towards other Christians in the church. And what are those attitudes and virtues? 
Look at verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Right, so as followers of Jesus, you should absolutely be characterized by sympathy, tenderheartedness, humility, and love towards all people, right? Not just to, to members of the church. But it seems clear that Peter is talking about the attitudes and virtues that should characterize our relationships with one another inside the church, right? That Peter is addressing relationships in the church, I think, is implicit in the call to have unity of mind and to be marked by brotherly love, right? We're to be of one mind because we are of one faith in one Savior, and we're to be marked by brotherly love because when God caused us to be born again, he caused us to be born again into a new spiritual family. And all of us who have been born again by his spirit are now spiritual siblings who should show brotherly love to one another. These are instructions for living a godly life in the church. How do we do that? Well, we see first that we're to pursue unity of mind. But what I'm gonna do for our purposes is I, I, I'm gonna take the first in the list and the last in the list and talk about them together. Right? I think they're related to one another. If you look there with me, we're to pursue unity of mind and we're to cultivate a humble mind. And the reason we need to pursue unity of mind with a humble mind is because there's a diversity of minds and ways of thinking among believers in the church, right? I trust you recognize this, but I'm just gonna point it out in case not. This room is full of lots of different people right? Different ages, different ethnicities, different sexes, different backgrounds, different personalities, dispositions, experiences, political and social instincts. The list goes on and on. And all of those differences impact how we interpret scripture and how we think about the Christian life, especially on matters that the scriptures don't speak directly to. And because of the great diversity of minds and ways of thinking that exist in our church, there's a high risk for disunity to arise. And because of that, we're to seek to have unity of mind, to be harmonious in our thinking. Now, I want to be clear here. I am not saying that we need to cultivate a yes-men mentality, right? where you have to agree with what the elders think about a particular issue or what other members think about this or that, right? Peter assumes that there will be Christians thinking in, to use a musical term, thinking in different keys, who as a result will have to work hard to think in harmony with one another, right? And because we, have, we think differently from one another on all sorts of issues, but are called to strive to, for unity of mind, then we're each going to have to cultivate a humble mind, right? A humble mind is the soil out of which unity of mind grows. You think about what biblical humility is. It's what Jesus calls being poor in spirit, right? People who are humble in mind recognize that were it not for the mercy and grace of Christ, that they would be utterly destitute, and entirely without hope of ever entering God's kingdom on their own merits. And this colors their entire way of life and thinking and their relationships in the church. I want you to imagine the humble-minded person and what they're like. The humble-minded person gives off the sweet aroma of gratitude because they recognize that their citizenship in God's kingdom 
is entirely by God's grace. So they're just grateful to be members of the church at all. The humble-minded person also gives off the aroma of being unoffendable, right? They're not easily offended because they know how often they've offended God. The the humble-minded person gives off the sweet fragrance of patience, right? They show patience to others because they know how patient God has been towards them. The person who is humble in mind stands firmly on the things that God has said and holds more loosely their convictions on things that God hasn't said. They're quick to listen to people who think differently about an issue because they recognize that they may not entirely understand an issue or topic. And then when they conclude that they disagree with another member, they do so with love and charity and continuing to pursue friendship and relationship with the person they disagree with. They're quick to admit mistakes because they know they make plenty of them. They're quick to laugh at themselves because they don't take themselves too seriously and they encourage others regularly because they're regularly thinking about other people more than they are themselves. And I trust that you can see how the humble-mindedness produces unity of mind, right? When the humble-minded person runs into relational conflict with another member of the church, they put off annoyance, they fight to put off frustration, they fight to put off assuming wrong motives, and instead they fight to put themselves in the other person's shoes. And they work as hard as they can to see things from their perspective. If they're upset or frustrated or annoyed because of something another person said or did, right, they go to that person and talk with them because they know they don't have all the information and they assume that their assumptions about the situation and about the person's motives are probably wrong, which in my experience, whenever I have assumed wrong motives in another person and I go and actually have a conversation with them, like 9.9 times out of 10, my, my assumptions were actually wrong and, and, and they're being reshaped by what this person is telling me, right? Or when there are decisions to be made in the church, the, pursuing who is, the person who's pursuing unity of mind thinks things like, I'm inclined to disagree on this particular matter, but before I disagree and I make it clear that I disagree, let me make sure I understand why a particular decision is being recommended or put forward. And then if I do ultimately disagree, I can do so with a clear conscience and without animosity toward the person or group recommending a particular decision. The humble-minded person who is pursuing unity of mind isn't going to represent someone else's opinions or motives unless they know that person would agree with them in their representation. They don't go behind people's backs and cultivate frustration towards them or vent their frustration with them to others. Instead, they go in humility and share their frustrations and perhaps allow that person to correct all the different ways that they might be off base, misguided, or wrong in their assumptions or correct and affirm those things. I don't want you to think about this in our life as a church. We've had countless opportunities as a church to pursue this unity of mind and humble-mindedness over the last six years. And I have seen the members of this congregation do it time and time again, right? Think about, think about things that we've faced over the last six years. Where we should meet as a church. We've had to meet in multiple places at multiple times as a church. When we should start meeting again during COVID. Whether or not we should obey masking laws as they kind of lingered on. What we should do with our budget, when to baptize kids. Obviously, there's gonna be lots of opportunities moving forward to do this, and I can't tell you how many examples I can think of in our life together of a church of members doing this so well. 
there's so many examples that more than I can even count. I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from members over the last six years where you all have done an amazing job of pursuing this unity of mind, right? You have clearly and humbly stated where you disagree with the elders, which is so important to pursuing unity, right? Pursuing unity isn't not voicing your disagreements, it's voicing them in a constructive manner, and you all have done that time and time again. And those emails have even been used by God to cause the elders to pivot at times and make different decisions. Right? Obviously, this takes nuance, and I'm not saying that every time you have a disagreement, you should voice it, whether it's with the elders or with other members of the congregation. That could get a little bit hard and kind of create a weird atmosphere here. Right? This is where knowing your disposition is helpful. Right? If you're the type of person who is prone to give criticism easily and to disagree more easily, well, maybe you should consider backing off and talking with other people to get their input on whether you should raise a disagreement. But if you're the type of person who's just kind of like go along to get along and, and really never speak your mind about ways that you might disagree with another Christian or with things going on in the church, you're, you're really robbing the church of your voice. God has given you particular wisdom. God has given you his spirit to speak into matters in the life of this church and to speak into other Christians' lives. So if you never speak up, I wanna encourage you to perhaps be the type of person who, who would speak up more often. And if you have questions like, I, I'm, I've not done this normally, I, I, I'm not sure whether I should do this, talk with other mature Christians in your life and say, hey, here's what's going on, here's what I'm thinking of saying, what do you think about that, right? But it's not just unity and humility in our thinking that we should pursue, but sympathy, brotherly love, and tenderheartedness. Right? You can see how each of these overlaps with the other, right? Sympathy and tenderheartedness are... They're kind of like planets revolving around love, which is the sun in the galaxy of Christian virtues, right? The love we're to show one another is a brotherly love because God has caused us to be born again into a spiritual family. All of us who have trusted in Jesus are now spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, who show one another familial love. And that familial love, Peter says, is to be seasoned with sympathy and tenderheartedness. Right? We should display a sympathetic and tender-hearted brotherly love towards one another. When we encounter misfortune, suffering, struggling, and need in one another's lives, we should be so moved in the core of our being that we want to pursue that person who's hurting with hearts full of tenderness, compassion, mercy, and sympathy, looking for ways to serve, to comfort, to encourage, to pray with, or to meet needs, right? Christians should be the last people on earth who are indifferent, cold, or uncaring to the misfortune of others. Because we know that we were dead in trespasses and sins, yet rather than coldly, indifferently, and uncaringly passing by us without stopping, the Lord stopped and looked upon us and, and so loved us that he sent his only beloved son into the world so that we might have eternal life, right? Think about Jesus. He was moved with such sympathetic and tender-hearted brotherly love for us that he took our entire burden of sin upon himself. As Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And if God has shown such love to us, then we should show that kind of love to one another. And this sympathetic, this sympathetic and tender-hearted brotherly love is also something that we should show to those who are struggling with sin, right? 
we, we often talk a lot about, like if another Christian is struggling with sin, we often talk a lot about admonishing them, exhorting them, challenging them, calling them back, calling back those who are in sin. All good things to do, part of your repertoire as a, as a Christian. But tender-hearted sympathy is also an appropriate response to those who are struggling with sin. The Puritan John Cleaver once said, those who have been stung with sin can more easily be moved to show sympathy towards poor sinners like themselves because by the feeling of misery, men lured the practice of mercy. I want you to consider this. If Jesus, who was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin, could still sympathize with us in our weakness, and there the author of Hebrews is talking about the battle with sin, if he could still sympathize with us in our weakness, how much more should we who have sinned show tender-hearted sympathy towards those who are struggling with sin, right? We shouldn't be a people who are, are cold, metallic, unfeeling, or hardened towards the weak, needy, and struggling saint. Because we at times have been weak, needy, and struggling saints. Instead, our hearts should be filled also with tender-hearted sympathy towards them. You think about the way the, the body reacts, like if a bone is broken or something like that, the, the bone breaks and there's swelling around the breaking. Why is there swelling around the breaking? Well, because the body is rushing to send in forces to fix that break, right, to surround that break. When you encounter with sorrow, suffering, or even sin in the lives of believers in this congregation, we wanna be the type of people who move towards the break, towards the hurt, towards the pain to surround it, show it sympathy and tenderheartedness, right? Now kids, I wanna speak to y'all. This can be particularly hard for you guys, right? It's hard for all of us. I don't know why I'm talking to y'all. It's hard for me. I often am not sympathetic or tenderhearted. But, but for you all, we, we spend much of our lives being focused on ourselves. And the more that you can learn at an early age to look out at what's going on in the lives of the people around you, to, to see needs in their lives, and to think about how you can meet needs in their lives, uh, and even go, go beyond that and try to imagine how a person might be struggling, the more that you'll grow in cultivating this type of sympathy and tenderheartedness. If you can, can actively think, I'm, I'm not the only person here. There's people that God has put all around me. What has he put me in their life for? Look around at the, the lives of the kids around you and think about how they might be hurting, how they might be struggling, and how you showing them sympathy might be a force for changing the direction of their lives, right? It's not normal for kids to do this, right? If your brother is mean to you, right, the normal tendency is to want to be mean back. But you might ask yourself, I wonder what's bothering him that's causing him to be unkind to me. Or perhaps you see a classmate being really quiet and not talking as much as they usually do, right? The sympathetic and tender-hearted person notices and then looks for a way to encourage them and comfort them and engage them. For the teens, true compassion and kindness towards your peers, especially when they don't deserve it, can literally change the trajectory of their lives. I think Leah, Leah has seen this up close in the high school where she works. Often the kids who are experiencing pain at home or who are really struggling, they, they can actually be really off-putting and prickly and hard 
to be around. It's kind of like a defense mechanism that goes up. Yet when other students engage them and treat them with tender-hearted sympathy, the hurting kids respond in amazing ways. And some of them even testify that it was the particular example of one student who loved them and showed sympathy to them that changed the direction of their whole life. The Lord can use your sympathy and love to change the course of someone's life. Unity and humility of mind and sympathetic, brotherly, uh, tender-hearted brotherly love are part of the godly life that we're called to pursue inside of the church if we want to experience eternal life. But it's not just in the church that we need to live a godly life, but outside of the church as well. And that brings us to point two, godliness outside of the church. Go ahead and look with me at verse nine. Peter writes, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. The godliness outside the church that Peter has in mind is specifically related to the godly way we're called to respond to insults, opposition, and persecution from those outside of the church, right? From the very beginning of the letter, Peter has reminded us that we are exiles, strangers, foreigners, sojourners. We, we serve a heavenly king and are citizens of a heavenly kingdom with beliefs and ways of living that the world considers odd, outlandish, backwards, and even immoral and evil at times. And because of that, we'll experience opposition, insults, and persecution. We, we, we might experience evil and reviling. Yet when we experience evil and reviling from the world, we're not to respond the way the world would. Right? The world operates by the complete opposite law. Right? It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You, you insult me and I'm, I'm gonna insult you. you. You yell at me and I'm gonna yell at you. You hit me and I'm gonna hit you. But Jesus calls us to a different way of living. He calls us to follow in his steps. Remember what Peter told us about Jesus in chapter two. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Since Jesus didn't respond to evil with evil or reviling with reviling, and we're called to follow in his steps, then neither should we respond to evil with evil or reviling with reviling. Let's be real. This is hard. Right, I read this and I'm like, yes, I can respond to persecution with kindness and love and generosity. And then my kid, one of my kids is like, hey dad, you didn't do this thing. I'm like, what are you talking about? Right, like even one of my kids can set me off. How on earth am I gonna respond to the world when they come out with in insults and opposition and persecution? This is hard. And it's so hard because it's contrary to human nature. And since we still battle against the flesh as believers, when we experience evil or reviling or insults or opposition, we're gonna, be wanted, we're, gonna, we're gonna want to respond in the same way, right? If you, if you have a family member, perhaps an extended family member who mocks you, whether overtly or subtly for your faith, right? You're gonna feel provoked in your flesh to respond to them in like fashion. I, how dare you do that to me? How dare you say, I'm gonna put you in your place, man. I'm gonna tell you why you're wrong. If you have a boss or coworker who's making your life harder because you chose not to adopt the morality of the world. You're, you're, gonna, find a want, you're gonna wanna find ways to get back in them. Look, I'm, I'm just not gonna do my work as hard as uh, you might want me to. I'm, I'm gonna find ways to get back at you. If you have a neighbor who doesn't appreciate what you believe about God, maybe spreads rumors or lies about you, or is just plain mean to you, right? You're, you might be provoked. I'm gonna take it out on you. I'm gonna find ways to get back at you. But the fleshly desire to respond to evil with evil isn't the only reason this command is hard. It's also hard 
because the command isn't just to not return evil with evil, it's to also actively bless those who do evil to you. Right, it's one thing to say don't return evil with evil, like okay, if I, if I try my darndest and stuff down all my desires to not yell at the person who just yelled at me, I think I can do it. I, I, it'll take all my willpower, but I think I can do it. It's a whole other thing to say, bless those who do evil to you. Like what? You want me to actively do good to this person who just did evil to me? Peter's like, yeah. That, that's what it means to, to follow Jesus. In fact, that's what, that's what Jesus says it means to follow Jesus. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus calls us to actively bless those who would be rude to us, unkind to us, to insult us or oppose us. You're not only to not respond to the family member who mocks your faith in the same way, you're to actively pursue them in love, find ways to bless them. You're not only to not respond to your boss who, who, who perhaps has given you a hard time because of your faith by, by doing, getting back at him in other ways, you're to actively work harder and to pray for God's richest blessings on him. To the neighbor who lies or spreads rumor, uh, rumors about you, you're to show kindness and love to them. Pray for God to show them the same mercy that he showed you. Right? This is ridiculously hard, but God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father so that we can follow in his steps. And Peter even tells us how we can obey these instructions. It's it's by doing what Jesus did, right? He didn't respond to evil with evil, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Right, when we respond to evil with evil, what we're doing is we're taking vengeance, justice, and judgment into our own hands. But what does God tell us in scripture? Vengeance is mine, I I will repay. We cannot return evil with evil by entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. This person just did an evil thing to me, a a mean thing to me, an an insulting thing to me, and, and, and I want to do it back to them, but I'm gonna entrust myself to God. I'm gonna wait on him. He's a much better judge than I am. He'll know exactly what to do and how to respond. Lord, help me to wait on you and to entrust myself to you. That's that's what it looks like to follow in Jesus' footsteps in the midst of experiencing evil from other people. Not only that, we can actively bless those who do evil to us by remembering the gospel. What is the gospel but a gigantic story of God blessing those who did evil to him, right? Before God saved us, what what does Paul say about us? We we were enemies of God, enemies. We did evil to him, children of wrath, opposed to him in thought and word and deed. We actively acted in evil towards him, but God chose not to respond to our evil with wrath, but with blessing. 
by sending the blessing of his son to live the perfect life on our behalf, to die the death that we deserve so that all who would believe in him would become children of God and receive the promise of eternal life. Friends, the gospel gives shape to our whole lives. It it motivates us by God's spirit who dwells in us to follow in the footsteps of Christ who went before us to obey even the most difficult of commands like this one. So I want you to think about what's going on in your life. How are you doing not responding to evil with evil? How are you doing not responding to reviling with reviling? Are there people in your life who have wronged you, who, have, who you have responded to in anger? Are there people in your life who have insulted you that, that you've insulted in return? Are there people that have lied about you whom maybe you've lied about in return? If so, what would it look like for you to, to obey these commands towards them? I think you might start by repenting, asking for, for, the, for, for their forgiveness so that you can begin being a blessing to them. And maybe you haven't responded to evil with evil or reviling with reviling, but you also haven't sought to bless those who have harmed you or been rude to you. Friends, Jesus doesn't just call us to turn away from evil, but to also actively pursue good. And the active pursuit of good here looks like blessing those who have done wrong to you. Are you praying for those individuals? Are you praying for God's blessing on them? Think even of Jesus, nailed to the cross, at the climax of when he would have been justified in responding in anger and rage, instead chose to pray, Father, forgive them. Are you looking for ways to not only pray for those who have done wrong to you, but to actively pursue them and bless them? And let's be real. While Peter is speaking primarily about how to respond to evil from people outside of the church, this instruction also implies inside of the church. Right now, now I think it's probably pretty unlikely or uncommon for us to do evil to one another in the way that Peter has in mind. Not impossible, but uncommon, less frequent. It's more likely that we'll experience just frustration, disagreement, misunderstanding, and things like that. But if we're not to respond to evil with evil and instead bless, then how much more are we to not respond with evil to things like someone who frustrated me, someone who didn't return my text, or someone who hasn't befriended me in the way that I wanted them to, or or someone who didn't show up to children's ministry on time, or, or someone who just said a kind of unthinking, unfeeling thing, and perhaps they weren't even noticing. How much more should we not respond to that with evil or wanting to get back at them in the same way? How much more should we be able to bless those in the church who haven't sinned against us, but perhaps just hurt our feelings, or said something that offended us, or acted in some way that was uncalled for? It's even... This even applies in marriage, right? Spouses, how, how are you doing not responding in kind to your spouse when they perhaps just have had a hard day? Maybe they come home at the end of the day and they're, they're, they're in a bad mood and you're, you're provoked to like, oh, why, like, why are you treating me so bad? Maybe just, hey, seems like you may have had a bad day. What, what's going on? Put on that sympathy and that tenderheartedness. Parents, between you and your children, right? I like, I am chief offender here, right? I'm giving instruction as one who has failed often at this. When your kids provoke you in some way, you just respond like in the same way back. You raise your voice, I'm gonna raise it louder. Right? Uh, that's, that's me. You better listen to me. Like, I'm big, you're small, you need to listen. Right? But how could you perhaps come down on their level? Say, hey, 
buddy, seems like you're having a hard time. Let me put my arm around you. Love you, right? We don't want to respond to evil with evil. Outside of the church, inside of the church, whatever it may be, we're instead uh, called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We're called to live godly lives, and we see in the passage that this isn't some small matter. We see in the passage that living godly lives is part of what it means to experience eternal life. And that brings us to point three, receiving eternal life. I said this at the beginning. I just wanna say again here that Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There, there is no other way for us to be saved, right? We're not saved by our works. There is no amount of good deeds that we could do to merit our way into heaven, to make up for the sins that we've committed against God. We need a savior to pay for our sins and that is what Jesus has done, Jesus alone. He died on the cross in our place, rose again from the dead three days later, promising that all who put their faith in him would be forgiven and saved by judgment. It's only by his righteous life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection that we have new life. At the same time, the New Testament authors also make clear that those whom God has saved will manifest their new life in Christ in the form of godly living, what scripture calls good works. Good works, in that sense, are the fruit of salvation. They testify to the reality of God's work in us. And that happens in all sorts of different ways and at different speeds, different ways. Some, often we're like the stock market ticker, right? It's like in certain seasons going up and back down and up and back down. There's a general trajectory right towards the heavenly city, right? But that work should be evident. There should be a change in us. The, the, the authors of the New Testament are so clear on this that James says that if we say we have faith but don't have works, don't have evidence of that change, then our faith is dead. It's not genuine faith, which is also why Peter speaks the way that he does here. Look at verse nine. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Why? For to this you were called so that you may obtain a blessing. Let's trace the logic here. We're to pursue unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and humility of mind, and we're to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead we are to bless. Why? Because we were called to this. We were called to godly living. We were called to following in Jesus' footsteps. Why? So that we may obtain a blessing. Godly life, godly living is required to obtain a blessing. And that blessing is eternal life in God's glorious presence. Look at me at verses 10 to 12, where Peter cites Psalm 34. He says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Notice the logic there. Whoever wants to love life and see good days must keep away from evil and actively do good because God shows favor to the righteous but opposes the wicked. If you want to experience the blessing of loving life and seeing good days, here's what you must do. Turn away from evil and live a godly life. 
We have to remember that Peter is citing Psalm 34, and in the original context of Psalm 34, a Psalm of David, King David, to the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, one of the most often repeated promises that God made to the nation of Israel was that if they walked in his ways, he would bless them with long life in the land, right? Live a godly life, you will see good days and love life in the land that I have given to you. In the New Testament, those promises of long life in the promised land are all prophetically fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. So when Peter cites Psalm 34 to support his argument, he's basically saying, anyone who wants to experience the blessing of eternal life in God's presence in the new heavens and new earth must live a godly life. That godly life begins with faith in Jesus Christ and that faith shows up in turning away from evil and actively pursuing good. And it shouldn't surprise us that Peter cites Psalm 34 here because Psalm 34 is written to persecuted saints who are being called to wait on the Lord for deliverance. David's saying, saints, don't return evil for evil. Don't attack those who are persecuting. Wait on the Lord and he will deliver you. Continue entrusting yourself to God and he will come to your aid. And we know that we should listen to David's instruction and Peter's instruction because Psalm 34 ultimately points us forward to Jesus. The final words of Psalm 34 say, many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David is prophetically speaking by the Spirit about Jesus. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It was Jesus who was stricken, smitten and afflicted on the cross, but God powerfully delivered him by raising him from the dead. Psalm 34, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You ever wonder why the gospel writers go to great pains during the crucifixion scene to tell you none of Jesus's bones were broken? Not one of his bones were broken on the cross because he is the Passover lamb who saves us from our sins. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Friends, if you need encouragement today to continue turning away from evil and doing good, if you need encouragement today to pursue unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, if you need motivation to continue not returning evil for evil, but instead blessing, look to Jesus Christ. He perfectly took refuge in God. He perfectly obeyed these commands. He perfectly turned away from evil and did good. He blessed those who cursed him and did good to those who opposed him. And because of that, the Lord redeemed the life of his servant. And in doing these things, Jesus left us an example that we might follow in his steps. Friends, on this side of heaven, following in Jesus' steps will lead us to the cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We will suffer for our faith, 
will be opposed for our faith, will be insulted, mocked, and maligned. But as we endure that suffering in a godly way, God will draw others to faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, we need to remember that our steps as we follow him don't, don't end at the cross. If we follow in Jesus' steps, we'll also experience the deliverance that he experienced. God will raise us from the dead and we will enter into eternal life where we will love life and see good days in God's glorious presence in the new heavens and new earth. But to enter into God's presence, we need to have our passport. Our profession that we are citizens of his kingdom needs to be coupled with a passport proving we are citizens. And what is that passport? Pursuing godly life. Pursuing godly living. Following in Jesus' footsteps. But to those who are not Christians here today, who are listening to this, I just wanna, I just wanna call you into the church, into faith in Jesus Christ, because Jesus wants to hold out to you a far greater way of living than the world holds out to you. I don't know whether it's social media or just kind of the ubiquity of news cycles, but our world feels more divided than ever. People seem more opposed to one another than ever. People seem to cheer on tribalism and hatred so that when one group does one thing that another group doesn't like, the other group does the other thing back to them. Jesus wants to hold out to you a far greater way of living. Lay down your tribalism. Lay down your anger. Lay down the desire to do evil to others when they do evil to you. That is a sign of the work of sin in your life. And that is a sign that we're under God's judgment. When we live to do evil towards others, it's a sign that the, the curse of sin is still controlling our hearts and that we're under God's judgment. But Jesus says, I came. I came to bear, to bear the punishment for your sins. I came to take the burden of your sin upon myself. And if you would follow me, I'd, I'd show you a far greater way of living. Not only that, I will give you my spirit to empower you to live in a way that you can't even imagine. And to those who are following Jesus Christ, who are feeling condemned, discouraged because of what they've heard in the text, you look at your life and you see, oh man, they're, they're, I've been really struggling with godly living. Does this mean I'm not gonna, in, it's not, I'm not gonna inherit eternal life? Does this mean God's not gonna let me into his presence? But just think of our benediction. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. First Peter chapter one, God has guaranteed that we will receive the inheritance that, is at, that, is, that he is keeping for us. God is at work in you to will and to work according to your pleasure. So receive this instruction today as an encouragement from God, an instruction by the Spirit. Hey, keep following Jesus. Keep turning away from evil. Keep seeking peace and pursuing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit to be at work in us. For those who don't know you, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would work to bring new life, to open their eyes to your goodness, your glory, your majesty, and to the glorious way that Jesus Christ has laid out for them to live, to not return evil for evil, but instead to bless and help us as your people to be a people who would be marked by that spirit, sympathetic, tenderhearted, full of brotherly love, humble in mind, seeking the unity of the spirit. Lord, help us to do these things so that you would be glorified and your church built up. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.